Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we've welcomed a very special guest, Jason Bateman, who stars in and directs the new film, The Family Fang, which opens this week. It also stars Nicole Kidman and Christopher Walken. It's the latest in a fascinating string of independent films for this actor, which we're excited to ask him about, especially because he uh, also worked with another actor-turned-director in last summer's The Gift and has a really interesting perspective on how you get an indie film film actually seen these days. And then from there, we'll venture back into television to talk about what everyone is talking about this week, it seems. Game of Thrones, it is back, it has us hooked, and we will talk about that first episode that aired this week. I know what you're thinking. How the heck does a 52-year-old, over-the-hill, milkshake machine salesman build a fast food empire with 1,600 restaurants at an annual revenue of $700 million? One word. Persistence. First, the week in Oscar news. Uh, We're still waiting for Cannes to reveal some of the year's biggest titles, and we'll be talking about that with Richard from a beach somewhere in a few weeks. But one summer contender revealed itself with a trailer for the first time. We've been keeping an eye on The Founder, which is the story of Ray Kroc, who uh, didn't found a McDonald's but kind of turned it into what it is. It stars Michael Keaton. Is it an Oscar play the way that we think it is? Did this trailer reveal anything? Um, I think the trailer revealed that it's a big Michael Keaton performance. Yeah. The tone of it seems a lot lighter than I thought it might be. Well, the summer release kind of yeah, suggested yeah. that. Yeah, no, it's that's true. You know, I'm sure there will be serious moments, but I think that really what the trailer showcases is that Keaton is really doing his Keaton thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going for round three now. Mm-hmm. Uh, round three of, uh, of Oscar of Oscar contention. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, in a row, three years in a row. Mm-hmm. So that's that's big for him. You know, so I, I'm intrigued on that front, and I think that you know, I think when we talked about um, this movie a couple weeks ago, you know, we were talking about the sort of darkness of this. You know, it's obviously a huge business success story but it's also about a, a you know food that's really bad for you and has sort of and a guy who stole yeah. the like didn't steal it but like, but like kind of took over yeah. a company that's founded by somebody else so you you see shades of that darkness um in the trailer which is intriguing too so um yeah i mean i would say um it's it's an effective trailer i mean in in that i'm, I'm now even more curious about it than i was before yeah it seems clear it won't be the greg Kinnear windshield wiper movie it's got more yeah, going it on doesn't seem that, that earnest you know yeah yeah i yeah. just want to know who like did Michael Keaton engineer this career comeback himself, or was it, does he have some kind of like Roger Stone character in the background? What? How did so this there's happen? A, there's a graying portrait in his house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that, 
or like some sort of monkey's paw. I don't, I don't know. I right? mean, it's it was question. like it's Beetlejuice was a long time ago. Yeah, I remember when he was in the other guys, the uh, Adam McKay movie. Speaking of this past Oscar race, uh, with it started Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, but he had a small supporting role in it, and it had this really funny bit parts, and a lot of people were like, "Oh yeah, Michael Keaton," right. and that was in about yeah. 2011. So it was kind of like sowing the seeds. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's been like a low, slow process, but you know, it's clearly reaping. I, I mean, I think he probably would have end. I think there's a good chance he would have ended up in spotlight. You know, despite Birdman, mm-hmm. right. but I think that Birdman, because it's about an actor trying to make a comeback of or a sort of you know quest for legitimacy, like it all just really dovetailed beautifully together. And maybe that was an accident. I mean, we've talked to other actors on this podcast, Donald Gleason, who who's like in six movies in a year. And it's not strategy. It's just like, oh, right. that's just how it all shook out. Yeah, you get what you can get yeah, yeah. generally in yeah. this business. Yeah. yeah. But Michael mm-hmm. Keaton definitely made the choice like not to just kind of like quietly retire in bit parts, but like really go for go it for in it. a big yeah. part, which, you know, also I think- it's in your in, in It's like a kind of a Tarantino move for in to be like, yeah. I'll bring this guy back. He was right. once the biggest yeah. movie star in America and he was the right fit for that role. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. of the, the setup. Yeah. Anyway, well, welcome back, Michael. Yeah. Well, uh, moving on to someone who has never gone away, Meryl Streep. We revealed a featurette uh, exclusively on VanityFair.com last week about Florence Foster Jenkins, which is the new movie in which uh, Meryl Streep plays the really famously terrible opera singer who was kind of deluded into thinking she could play Carnegie Hall, which she did. Are we stretching by thinking that every single Meryl Streep movie is an Oscar contender no matter what? Or does this seem to have like something to it? It's also an August release, like The Contender. It's got a comedic tone. It's directed by Stephen Frears, who made Philomena and has a crazy track record at the Oscars. But is, does this movie look too silly to you guys? I don't to... think it's a stretch. She gets nominated for every other movie she does. So, <laughs> Almost uh, yeah. literally I mean, if Suffragette movie. could be an Oscar contender, with, right. well, she was in it for five seconds, it, but they it, just used her it name. It was briefly yeah. an Oscar contender yeah. and yeah. then no. vanished. I, I think it's totally legit. You know, I think at this point, uh, there isn't there is no difference between a Meryl Streep vehicle and an Oscar vehicle. You know, it's just <laughs> it's they're synonymous. You know, the, the tautology. And it's an interesting story, you know, and it's been told on stage before. I believe there was a play called The Nightingale about 10 years ago about the, the same woman, you know, because it's this great opportunity for an actress of a certain age, as they say, to do this funny singing thing because she was a terrible singer and yet, you know, performed at these big concert halls. So I don't there is a comedy element to it, but there's also a kind of sadness so i think that that's a great line for meryl streep to tread and maybe something for hugh grant too who knows you know he's 11 years younger than meryl streep seeing him play her love interest or husband husband i think they have a relationship uh is uh, pretty nice and hugh Hugh grant is also somebody speaking of michael keaton who sort of i mean he i think hugh grant kind of voluntarily took himself out of the business for a while and said he was kind of done with it and that because he said he never liked acting that much but now he's been back he's been doing stuff so yeah no it's great to see him again yeah little known fact guys you can actually rent out Carnegie Hall. Anyone can do it. You just need enough money. <laughs> oh, and really? I, yeah, I, I thought to, it just took practice. I thought- <laughs> my first job was making programs for classical music. And there was this guy who was very weird. And he'd rent out Carnegie Hall every year to do his Handel's Messiah that he would conduct. And it turned out he lived in my hometown. And we talked while putting together his program, which I had to do, part of the deal of renting out right. Carnegie and he invited me, and I thought, how bad can this be? You know, it's probably good. I got, like, fifth row center seats. 
And I walked out 10 minutes in. Isn't that horrible? I'm oh, just wow. a bad person. It was that bad, though. It was, I was like, oh, it can be horrible. This is <laughs> well, un- well, it was all chimpanzees playing the instruments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's well, it makes a good yeah. story that you were there. And then after about five minutes, you're like, okay, I got the story. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, There's no uh, need to be here for another two and a half hours. So anyway. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. David Bowie claimed to be a very big fan of Florence Foster Jenkins. He put uh, her album on a list of like 25 essential albums in Vanity Fair. So, you know, there's one high profile fan. See that? Maybe this, maybe this guy whose name I forget will eventually <laughs> find his own immortality. He's, his, the, he's the Michael Keaton of amateur Handel Messiah. He's probably ha- dead by now. He'll have his own uh, Stephen Frears directed biopic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite place in the whole world. And I'm going to sing here. I think this might be too much for you. If you truly love me, you'll let me sing. I cannot play Carnegie Hall with Madame Florence. You know she will not survive the evening without us. Will you play with your friend? Oh boy, we're going to die out there. And now we'd like to welcome Jason Bateman, whose new film The Family Fang debuted last fall at the Toronto Film Festival, and it opens in theaters this Friday. It is the second film that Bateman has directed after 2013's indie success comedy Bad Words, in which he played a uh, a horrible adult spelling bee champion who just tortures a kid, but is actually really funny. We asked him about his kind of new career as an indie film director, although he's been directing since he was 18, which is something I didn't know until today, and uh, then how his work as, as an actor has led him to this kind of natural transition, even though he's still acting and why you kind of do need to make that change at some point to, uh, you know, keep your career fresh. So this movie premiered at Toronto last year. It's making its way to theaters now. And it's it's interesting that it kind of it followed up bad words in a, you know, not like immediately after like it was announced like, oh, Jason Bateman will direct this huge movie. It kind of emerged very organically. And I'm curious if you knew after finishing that film that you did want to jump immediately back into into directing again. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting thing for me to do on. Um on a on a set you know i've i've spent a lot of a lot of time since i was a little kid on a set and and you know hopefully you soak a bunch of stuff up as far as you know what it what it takes to kind of create these fake worlds and you know an, an actor kind of has one particular job in that effort but a, a director kind of has the privilege of of like involving he or she himself or herself with with multiple departments. It's, it's kind of a complicated, big challenge. So I've always kind of looked forward to getting the opportunity to do that. And and then um, and then yeah, doing bad words was was a lot even more fun than than I even thought it would be. And so I was looking looking to do to do it again immediately and. And uh, and Family Fang didn't push me in the opposite direction. I I'm, I want to do it even more now. Well, what I didn't realize is that you had joined the DGA when you were 18 to direct episodes of Valerie, which is and that's not even precocious. That's like at a child prodigy level. That's, that's incredible. Wonderkind. <laughs> yeah, it. You know, that was not to take anything away from multi multi camera directors, uh, which is you know what uh, sitcoms are in front of an audience, but. It is definitely a different process, and it's a little bit a little bit closer to directing a play. And that you know you've, you've got the audience out there, and everybody's kind of on one side of of a line. You know this this sort of this proscenium, and th- there are, there are more things I think a director can do in in a single camera project. Like you know, there's some single camera stuff on television, obviously, um, but you know, obviously every film is 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 that single camera thing where a camera can get up in the set. So is that maybe that directing Arrested Development was a more of a springboard toward uh, directing features because that is that single camera process? Yeah, correct. Um, but, you know, I only did one of those, but it, it was my first single camera effort and, and, you know, definitely kind of got me 
very, very, very itchy to to get going at it if I could. So you've been in the business for a long time, and I'm wondering if this kind of, you know, moving from acting into directing while still acting, is that kind of evolution, do you think, necessary to sustain a career over, you know, a few decades versus kind of, you know, having a short arc uh, as a big actor? Like, do you, do you view it that way? Well, yeah. I mean, not not to sound overly strategic, but I do think that it is true in in both cases. I think that not only it's it's satisfying if you want to kind of evolve in challenging yourself. Yeah, it's. I think it's as we were talking about earlier. It 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 definitely demands you use that which you've learned. But I do think it's it is it's smart to you know kind of diversify in this in this business. It's. Uh, I mean, I frankly, I, I can't believe that that I stayed employed as an actor as long as I have. It's you know, this is a a really fickle business, and and it's it's not a meritocracy, especially on the acting side. So, I feel very very fortunate that I've been able to continue acting, and uh, to to open up another avenue of employment is is certainly smart, pragmatic, uh, realistic. So with The Family Fang in particular, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny movie. Um, and we, you know, we know you from a lot of comedy stuff, but it's also, there's a, a real seriousness to it. I mean, it's about this, um, this family with a lot of problems, the two adult siblings. Is that, is that another kind of conscious choice about trying to move into a different or sort of blend genre? Or is it more just about the material and whatever genre it's in, you're just happy to do it? I'd say I'd say yes to both of those things. Again, you know, I, I didn't intend for it to be, you know, overtly funny. I, I'm not really attracted to things that are that are really obviously funny. You know, like like broad comedies. I, I just don't feel like I'm I'm very good at those. I, I I think my sense of humor lies a little closer to the middle, and my taste in drama. I think I would say the same. So, I mean, frankly, what attracted me to this was just the fact that you know, this, this incredibly talented, you know, woman named Nicole Kidman, you know, had this project and liked bad words and, and called and said, you know, would I be interested in playing her brother and directing this movie? And I just, you know, I, the only thing I wanted out of bad words was the opportunity to direct another movie and to get that kind of, uh, you know, phone call was, was, was flattering to say the least. I mean, I, I basically didn't even need to read the script before I said, yes. And when I read it, it was, you know, it, it's really, it, it's something that was clearly, you know, going to be a bit complicated tonally. And, and so I thought, well, great, this is kind of a, an escalation as far as the challenge goes. Yeah, I was going to ask about the kind of notoriously brutal marketplace for making indie films, which you, you may have learned firsthand with bad words. But when if when it's Nicole Kidman who's shepherding a project like this, does it clear the path in a way? And then, you know, you get Christopher Walken on board and you've got these names attached. Does that make it any easier or is making an indie film still just really hard? The difficulty of making them is less about the financing because films, at least of this scope, this scale, are usually financed by by one, two, maybe three individuals. And it's just, you know, just a straight equity sort of financing thing. Somebody just writes a check because uh, they kind of want to be, you know, they want to, that's, that's just part of their investment portfolio. And, and it's, you know, it's, uh, and, and we're the, we're the beneficiaries of it. The, the, the difficulty is turning a profit on these things because, I think to kind of build the social pressure to go see a film nowadays costs, you know, 30 or $40 million to kind of build that kind of profile from a marketing standpoint. And, 
you know, you spend, you know, 6 million, 10 million on a movie, it's kind of hard to, to, to get comfortable about spending 30 or $40 million to buy commercials and posters for it. Speaking of the economics of it, you were, um, late last summer, you were in a great movie called The Gift that was a, a, a movie from STX, this kind of new studio that's trying to do these mid-budget things and, you know, have a very interesting marketing strategy. And your, your performance, again, was really great. It was a nice kind of dark Thank you. role for you. It was, it was fun. What was the experience like watching that movie become a hit? Was that, did that um, give you hope about, about Family Fang or about like the, the, the future of indie cinema, or do you think it was just a uh, a lucky shot? I, you know what? Again, I'm I'm not smart enough to figure out why it worked. <laughs> Certainly, the 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 movie was great, and I think that's probably why it lasted so long in the theaters. Because you know, week one, week two, people might be curious based on you know the marketing, but then it, then it does have to last based on its merits, based on you know word of mouth. Yeah, I was I was very happy to see it uh, it become a success. One because uh, Adam Fogelson's a friend of mine who was who's you know uh, head of that company over there at STX, and this was I think their first release, so I was really excited about that. And yeah, as you say, their their kind of their mandate over there is to do those mid level films that have kind of gone away from the studio system mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent. And yeah, hopefully that kind of film is embraced at the theater a little bit more than it than it is currently you know films like kramer versus kramer or you know all the president's men or the verdict or all of these sort of adult films used to be the blockbusters back in what the the early 80s and late 70s and nowadays you just they're an anomaly right at the at the theaters and and that's a shame i just don't know where that audience has gone perhaps they're staying home watching television because tv does that stuff really well now but it would be nice if we could figure out a way financially to to make those last in the theaters maybe stx is is on something there that would be great well and people find a lot of films uh watching at home too i mean there's so many films that go on vod or are in theaters and then quickly on vod is that as a director yeah, that's what we're trying with yeah we're trying that with uh with family fang um i mean we're certainly not first but um that that model is is hopefully going to become really viable where you know you, you have a domestic release for a, a week or two and give people a chance to see it in the theater if they, if they want to, and, and also kind of get that initial word of mouth kind of going, but then almost immediately it's, it's there on your iTunes or whatever service you have, and you can watch it in the comfort of your home. It's, it's a, it's not ideal because, you know, they're, you're making the movie assuming a large scale projection mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of informs how you format the frame and uh, all that other kind of stuff. But it's better than a movie opening and closing in, in a week. And, you know, you got to wait six months for it to, you know, hit DVD or something. And, uh, this is, this is, this is, this will be interesting. Hopefully they can make it all work. I saw it on the big screen at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, in September and really liked it. And, uh, I'm just kind of curious to hear from you. What is the, what do you think the advantage of going to a big festival like that is? I mean, I mean, obviously there's a business aspect, but do you feel like it gives the film a sense of momentum or what was your experience like? I had a great experience. Um, you know, that, that festival, as you know, is, or I hope you had a lot of fun there. I've, I've had a lot of fun yeah, going to that great. festival oh, yeah. over the years. It's, it's really a, a group of really nice people. And they're obviously, you know, pretty sophisticated about, about movies and we're very warm and, and pretty, pretty inclusive. I've, I've never really heard, you know, any, any group audience sort of 
you know, slam a movie or, you know, the certain festivals, you kind of hear like nasty responses sometimes to movies. They, they, they don't seem to do that in, in Toronto, which is kind of nice. But um, I think the festivals are, can, can be really advantageous for films like this, which are somewhat, you know, pardon the term nuance. You know, they're not, these kinds of movies aren't, they're not loud and, and they don't have some incredibly high, concept that you know an audience can kind of understand and say oh well i got to get out of the house i got to go see that you know they're gonna they're gonna succeed on their execution and you need you need people with i guess the, the the taste to to have something like this appeal to them i suppose and then go out and tell people to go see it that's kind of your best shot at building an audience jason this is mike uh sorry to chime in a little late here but uh, i wanted sorry, to ask mike, you how was last night was it a good time uh, i'm still recovering <laughs> Um, I have a question Don't for you. you. Throw up on your go- on your on your other host. <laughs> <laughs> Directing Christopher Walken. What? How, how does that work? <laughs> Gently. <laughs> You know, he. You obviously you don't you don't hire Christopher Walken to uh, to to kind of fit your idea of how the role should be played. You you hire him because you you hope and pray that he brings everything that he wants to bring and play it the way he wants to play it. And that's certainly what he did. And he uh, he was really nice to me. I, w- I was so appreciative that he was you know kind to me as was Nicole. You Were you know, worried I'm, that he I'm might a, not be kind? Had you, was that, was that a concern? Well, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a new director, you know, and, <laughs> and you hope that you hope that the actors and the crew members and everybody associated with the process are, you know, will be patient with you and help you out. And, uh, you know, your job basically is to answer questions and fix problems. And oftentimes, you know, you need help with all those things. So he couldn't have been nicer. And, and, um, my experience as an actor with directors, you know, the, the the ones that I've really, really enjoyed are those that aren't giving me notes based on their desire for me to fit their vision of the character and how they've heard these lines said in their head as they've been in pre-production and developing the script and all that stuff, but rather a director that that kind of identifies the way in which I want to play a character and then kind of helps me execute that and keep that inside kind of a, the goalposts. And um, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what I try to do as a director. And, uh, and he seemed to really respond to that. It worked out great. His performance is amazing. He's really good. I, I also, yeah, thank I, you. I also wanted to point out Marianne Plunkett, who is not one of the brightest names in the cast, like in terms of fame level, but she's so good in this film. I'm curious how you, you cast her and, and how she came about to be in the movie. Well, I mean, aside from, Nicole and and Chris, you know, the rest of the cast obviously was was all auditions and and uh, and, and, a, and a deep search led by A.V. Kaufman, who was mm-hmm. our casting director. I've got to you know give her all the credit in the world for gathering and 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 bringing me all these great great choices there locally in New York. And Marianne is is somebody who. I was not aware of, but not no fault of her own. I'm just, you know, an idiot when it comes to to theater and and most things basically. But <laughs> she was, you know, as you said, fantastic, and it was it was really fun in the editing process to just you know stare at her all of her coverage and pick out these these little moments. She's so subtle. She's so 
she's so trusting that the camera is watching, which is you, it's not common for theater actors is sort of the, the rap that they get, you know, that they're, they're sort of trained to kind of reach the back row. And, um, film actors on the other hand, you know, are used to being in a close up, and so they'll keep things really small, but she's, she's so small. She's so tasteful. And there are a lot of really great moments we were able to, to, to throw up there that, that she, that she gave. She was fantastic. Jason, we're talking about how difficult it is to get people to go to the theater for an indie film. Would you, now that you've got a couple films under your belt as a director, would you be interested in directing a big blockbuster sci-fi thing that does have a $40 million budget and butts in the seats? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love that. I, I just don't think that those big movies need to be crappy, too. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they're, they're, they're allowed to be. But I'm really excited by the, the challenge of, you know, getting the opportunity of doing one of those and finding finding the moments where, you know, you can you can please the the, the harder, more discerning viewers as well. I think that there's there's plenty of opportunities of, you know, in the in the execution of a film where you can maybe sometimes in the way you cast the bad guy or the way in which you score the film or it's just a bunch of different ways that it doesn't have to be crappy. And, and, and certainly nowadays, a lot of these blockbusters, a lot of these tent poles are really, you know, sophisticated. I think Christopher Nolan was, um, was somebody who, you know, started the more recent wave of that, but, you know, Steven Spielberg was doing that a long time ago where he was getting, you know, incredible, incredible films out there, um, that were certainly, um, you know, supported by the critics, but also, you know, great popcorn fare all at the same time. So hopefully I'll get a chance to do that. That would, that'd be, that'd be fun. I'm curious what you've seen lately that made you jump out of your seat and either say, God, I wish I directed that or God, I hope I can direct a movie like that sometime. And it doesn't have to be a giant blockbuster, just whatever inspires you. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, um, a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson and, uh, you know, the Cohen brothers and David O. Russell. I mean, you know, not, not so dissimilar from most people. Classics. And obviously, you know, the Revenant uh, was just, just knocked me out. Um, and Birdman. So, you know, I guess I got, I got to put him on the list too, uh, very easily. So you got to get Emmanuel Lebeski to come uh, shoot a whole movie in one take for you and just to see how it goes. <laughs> that would be, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, there's some really exciting filmmakers out there. Were you Team Revenant or Team Spotlight at the Oscars this year? That was a big co- topic of conversation for this group. Oh yeah, I was I was big time uh, Revenant, big time. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty amazing for everyone. Well, it, it worked out well for the Revenant and Spotlight yeah. both, I think. So there were really no losers in that bunch. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was wondering when you did your because we talk a lot about the Oscars when you had your your run with Juno, and we were going to kind of come back to that later in the episode that that year. What do you remember about being part of that craziness that 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 race that year? Just going to the Oscars. I mean, that was that was pretty amazing. You know, you, you sit down there in those first. I don't know. 10, 20 rows. There's a lot of heroes down there. And um, was that your first time going to the Oscars? I think it was. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of one of the only good things about being somewhat recognizable in in life is that every once in a while you'll 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 meet somebody that that you're a big dorky fan of, and they'll recognize you, and they'll want to ask you a question, and so you're like <laughs> immediately in a conversation at a peer level. 
that was kind of what it was like just, you know, for the first, I don't know, five, 10 minutes before they said, all right, everybody shut up and sit down. We're about to start the show. So I, I got to meet a, a couple of people and it was, it was really, really cool. Anyone in particular you remember? Ethan Cohen. Um, oh, that's that's good. pretty good. He was, he was nice. Yeah. Really, the Coens always seem like very fun to hang out with when they're not doing press. Like they don't really like talking about their work, but they'll be fun to hang out with anybody else. This has always been my guess. Yeah, that was definitely the sense I got. I, I actually, I, yeah, I, I was, I was hoping that maybe they would delay the broadcast for a while so I could continue my conversation. <laughs> we'll find your collaboration somewhere down the road. Yeah. So, Jason, I think we've uh, kind of exhausted our round of questions for you. So, And I know you have a long day ahead of you, so I think we can let you go and start your morning. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me. Hey, Baxter. Where are you? In the hospital. I got shot in the head. What? You got shot in the head? I almost got killed by a potato. And Mom and Dad are bringing me home to recuperate. Tell them you can't go. Just stand up to them, Baxter. When have I ever done that? Well, Game of Thrones is back as you have to have heard if you've been anywhere near the internet and seen that picture of the crone woman who closed out the first episode. Uh, We're obsessed with it. We talk about it all the time. We write about it all the time. Uh, It's, you know, it's going to be at the Emmys, so it's got an awards connection. Uh, We've only seen the first episode because famously there are no screeners. Only President Obama knows what's going to happen next. (laughs) What did you guys think of the premiere episode? Well, I just first want to say what a hell of a weekend HBO had. (laughs) Really? And they offered it for free, so they got like, you know, every American to watch probably. Yeah, they had Beyonce's Lemonade the night before and then Game of Thrones season six premiere. I and mean, Veep in Silicon just, Valley. And Veep in Silicon Valley. Yeah. We shouldn't discount them. I mean, that was just a big weekend for a, a network that some people are worried is, you know, having a hard time trying to f- forge a path forward. So good yeah. for them. I don't know. I liked it. I was into it. You know, I'm, I'm one of those smug book readers who is mm. now has nothing to be smug about mm. because I don't have no idea what's happening. Um, I watched <laughs> the episode with my roommate who is uh, she is she, she's the one who got me into the uh, into the books. And at the end, the big reveal with Melisandre, I turned to her and I was like, did we know that? <laughs> and she was like, I don't think we knew that because we had read the book so long ago. So that was kind of fun, actually. I enjoyed that being surprised with everybody else and not being like, see, I told you, you know, mm-hmm. and it was good. So I I'm, I don't know. I, I, I waver on the show by the end of each season. So we'll see. But uh, so last season, I was like, I don't know. But I, you know, the minute that music started up, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm back. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so exciting to have something so yeah. big coming back. And you it get is. the credits yeah. and you're going to all the lands yeah. and it's so expensive. I mean, nothing else on television looks like it. It's, it's just feels like you're in like an action movie that's got like, no good dialogue and characters. Except for the Dothraki wigs did not look expensive. <laughs> that's a uh, Mo Ryan pointed that out on Twitter. <laughs> they're nomadic people. I mean, you're yeah. not going to have good wig makers. They have like, great eye makeup, yeah. though. Yeah, great. they're all made of horse hair wigs. That's probably. Yeah, I mean, this was a little bit of a table setting episode, right? Or, or kind of like a wrap up from last season. So uh, it was, yeah, it was just kind of like fun, like, oh, let's get reacquainted with everybody. I mean, certainly the Jon Snow stuff was sad. Well, were you surprised um, that they didn't bring him back? Because I think... Uh, I, should I, we I, issue a spoiler alert, by the way? I mean, I mean who cares? The, People, the internet yeah. widely assumes that Jon Snow will come back. There is right. no there's no information to prove that he will. Okay, he, he, the books don't know. So, But everyone yeah. just thinks that he will. So I kind of... Well, I, I kind think of that's why I wasn't it. that bummed because I was like, I know he's coming back, so they're just going to stretch this out. Who knows what that red woman is up to um, yeah. with her five? She can make herself look like that at age 400 or whatever. Yeah. She can bring Jon Snow back. Well, and she's, she's there for a reason, for sure. Yeah. And do we re- – I mean, are we convinced that he's coming back? Yes. I, I don't know. I'm, I waver on it, man. Yeah. I, I know there's, like, evidence to suggest it, but maybe I'm just such a rube, but, like – 
there have been so many interviews with Kit Harrington with other actors, and they're like, "He is off the show. He is done. He he's like, my time with Game of Thrones is over." I'm like, "Would they really lie? What if, it's, I just what remember... if he comes back as a different actor?" Well, that's what oh, I think, and and honestly, that's what I think is going to happen yeah. in the next book because the book ends with him dead, uh, but he has this warging ability. So my think my thought was mm-hmm. that the character would be back, but Kit Harrington wouldn't. What if he comes back as his dire wolf, and it's just all about a wolf from now? Well, on. hey, John Favreau, <laughs> The Jungle Book just proved that, that you can do that <laughs> yeah. effectively, right? That's true. No, I, I think it, you know I I am I'm choosing to believe that he's coming back, but um, I, I think it's going to be an interesting to see how they do it. Well, I think the game that they're playing with their audience where, you know, the showrunners are like kind of vocal in responding to the audience, even though they say that they don't never respond to the audience. It's kind of an interesting game that they play. And clearly at this point, they know everyone's waiting to see if Jon Snow comes back. They, the first poster released for the season was of Jon Snow. Like they are right. they are playing with us. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like they might wait till episode five or six to do anything about all this. I mean, Sir Davos is getting at some interesting stuff at the wall, but that story can pause while we go focus on everything else. Yeah. I like that Sir, Sir Alistair is uh, Sir Alistair Thorne, right? Yeah, is, the guy who's sitting in the Night's Watch. Yeah, so we have a, a, a good, solid villain there, Ramsay mm-hmm. Snow, who just uh, just really can't wait for him to die. <laughs> He's Ramsay Bolton now. He got Ramsey legitimized. Ramsay Bolton, thank you. Yeah. I really, really need him to die by the end of this season. But I love the Reek, Sansa, Brienne, yeah. Podrick foursome that's a fun Avengers that's a style cool, conversion that's a cool yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> like, that fight scene yeah. with Brienne and Pod was really satisfying mm-hmm. and then where uh, Brienne kind of takes her oath to Sansa and it's like this the resolution of seasons of Brienne's oh. character where she's just looking for someone I'm to I'm actually serve. getting like weepy now thinking about it yeah uh, <laughs> I love Gwendolyn Christie in that role and it's just so I mean she didn't do much last season well, so it's they, really good to have her back yeah and they somehow they really set it up where you feel happy for you feel so happy for Brienne that she finally yeah. has someone that sh- who's worthy of her mm-hmm. worship. That's all she wants is yeah. like to serve somebody. That's a very human, there's something really human about that, you know? It's cool. Just find your place in the world. And yeah. Has, um, I, I couldn't remember, did, um, has, has Reek slash, uh, you know, Theon. Uh, Theon told Sansa that her brothers aren't dead? I think so. I think oh, he she, told her at the yeah, end of okay, last season. Okay. So, so like the, you know that that kind of propels their story forward. I thought you were going to say, did he tell her that he? His, oh, his, his did his junk no, got cut he off. Can't, oh, well. uh, can't perform as <laughs> as he once did. Yeah, they were raised together. I don't think she's yeah. interested one way or another. Yeah, they're they're like brother and sister. No, I think he yeah. told her because that's yeah. how he's earned her trust. Right. Back. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. But yeah, no. All the start will, you know, she's in the north, and uh, Rickon and Bran are in the north, and John is somewhere. Like, yeah. there's a, I, I think, uh, Arlo and Joanna Robinson, who does the, the bulk of the Game of Thrones coverage for us, very, has speculated very well that, that there's she's amazing it. Yeah. at it, and she has speculated that there's a Stark kids reunion. Like, Arya is going to take her time, yeah. But uh, we might see some Stark seeing each other, which is going to be. And that's really one nice. of the big unknowns from the books is that you know we haven't in the books you haven't seen Rickon for two books, yeah. So everyone's no, we, like, oh, you hear a whisper of him toward the end of the fifth book, so it's like, oh, where where is he going to be? And, and gonna, in the books, you know, we haven't seen Bran either, right? Like he goes off the way he yeah, does. Yeah, he goes into, well, we'll see ne- next week. Yeah. He goes off into his weird tree cave and <laughs> becomes God. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, with Max von Sydow. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so oh, I don't know. Right. There's a lot of, I mean, that's the thing is that this episode um, was a broad survey of characters, but we there were still some we didn't see, so yeah. you know, and the, and the show, the, the, they have to do that at this point. I mean, there's so much. There's too many characters. Yeah, but I didn't feel the way I have with certain Game of Thrones episodes in the past. I didn't feel like I got short shrift with anybody um, on Sunday night, like I felt I felt like the episode spent a good amount of time 
on its people on the you know on on everybody. Yeah. It felt fair. I'm still a little bugged by Dorn. I'm not. I know. I know a lot of book readers are really bummed about how that plot has turned out because it's really interesting in the books, but it never really took off last season. Well, yeah, they excised like a bunch of Dornish plots from yeah. the books, and I think that in the premiere they just kind of were like, "Fuck it," and just I know, and it, it killed like, everybody. Yeah. I, honestly, yeah. I was like, fine with that. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think we're going back to it though? Like, are we going to watch Alaria Sands rise, or is that like okay, goodbye, Dorn? We killed. No, I think she'll be involved. Yeah. I mean, Indira Varma, who's the great actress who plays her, she was from Rome years ago she's in the opening credits now so i i think oh, that boy. she's she's there to stay. i like the spear through the face so that was pretty good that was yeah but they intense. killed all the cute boys i mean i was just doing it man we should have yeah. an entire calisar of dothraki just showed up oh, that's true fair <laughs> enough there's fair so enough. many of them fair enough so we talked to jason bateman about how like a lot of people are going to television for their adult stories now like for you know the kind of adult filmmaking that dominated the box office in the 70s and 80s game of thrones sometimes gets credited for being that and sometimes as ian mcshane said it's called just tits and dragons are, are we feeling like it's earning our deep thought at this point or are we just all hooked and we can't help it i think it has a, a m- moments you either in every episode or definitely in every season that sort of transcend tits and dragons and become <laughs> something i mean i'm thinking about aria uh, on the boat going off to mm-hmm. bravos at the end of season four i think it was um yeah. you know beautiful sort of poignant scenes like that sansa and Littlefinger in the crypt and he's telling her this story about the past that you know is i think going to come to bear later uh, in this season you know i think that the show has moments of beauty that make it prestige with a capital p television but that they're very astute at blending those things and i think that's why it's the rare you know sort of global hit that it is is because it um, part 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 of the reason why is because it it, it you feel like you're getting brain food, but it's also so visceral. Yeah, I mean, not to get wonky or whatever, but English literature is heavily built on, you know, the Arthurian legends and all that stuff. Like, this is not, there's, I think it's plenty legit. Yeah. You know, it's fun, it's genre-y, but it's, uh, you know, if you can make people feel real things, which I really did feel with Brienne and Sansa, and create real beauty, which they do, then like, you know, just because it takes place in a uh, ridiculous land based on Bayonne, New Jersey. I don't know. Why not? Right. Yeah. Fine. yeah. And I think that maybe this is just me not knowing enough political history, but the the kind of power struggle of it and kind of watching people like what people want and how they trade for it. And I think President Obama even watches it and says it's like the most accurate representation of politics. So Well, right. right? Yeah. If he, knows, if he thinks it's good. Yeah. Then, that uh, and Veep, people say. <laughs> yeah. I was just in the White House last week and they were like, you know, Veep is the one. That's how it, what it's really like. <laughs> Horrifying. So some, some cross between Littlefinger and uh, Jonah from Veep yes. who's actually yeah. running mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> well, we'll be keeping an eye on Game of Thrones. We may find our we find an excuse to talk about it because we obviously love talking about it and uh, obviously you guys are watching it. So I uh, look forward to it winning a bunch of those technical Emmys. <laughs> right. And now we'll close with a, another chance to rewrite recent history. Uh, in honor of our guest, Jason Bateman, we thought we'd look back at the year in which he had a major role in a Best Picture nominee, which was Juno. If we were in charge of the 2007 Oscars, uh, or the ones that took place in 2008 for the films of 2007, uh, what would have won Best Picture? And uh, as a reminder, the nominees were No Country for Old Men, which was also the winner, Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, and There Will Be Blood. This was one of the last years of just the lineup of five. So, you know, it's a feels longer ago than it really was, I think. Yeah. At the time, I was really struck by the fact that 
There Will Be Blood, I mean, sort of artistically is a masterpiece. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's actually the last of Paul Thomas Anderson's films that I really connected with. I think, you know, he's kind of lost me since. So that it was going up against No Country Old Men, which is also a masterpiece. It felt like, and they're also sort of similarly toned. Yeah, you like know, the dark, of, n- modern, and they, and they were both filming in Texas at the mm-hmm. same time. So I, at the time, I probably was partial to There Will Be Blood, but No Country for Old Men still stands out to me as like, one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. I think it's so well done. Have and, you revisited it? Oh, yeah, many times. I mean, I, you know, and, and that I've seen, I've watched it start to finish many times, even more times. I've honestly just watched the final scene with Tom Lee Jones talking about his dream with his father and then mm-hmm. that quiet end credits. You know, ooh, it's just chilling. It was like we was both back in the older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going. Never said nothing going by. Just rode on past. I would still go with no, no country, uh, honestly. Although Michael Clayton, you know, in any other year, maybe I would have gone. Michael with that. Clayton was so good, yeah. and like I think I saw it late, like maybe even after the Oscars. And it's one of those things where you're like, "What is this movie? Like, it's about a lawyer. I don't understand." And then you just—it's one of those things that just absorbs you. And it's yeah. got amazing performances, and it. Tilda Swinton won an Oscar for it. Like of all the things Tilda Swinton could have won an Oscar for, it's like maybe her most normal person role yeah. ever. But no, it's such solid. I mean, honestly, this entire lineup is really, really it's an good. Incredible lineup. <laughs> really I would good. watch any of these movies tonight. Yeah. And you remember that even the at- atonement, which probably comes off as the slightly cheesy easier like standard issue Oscar thing but that amazing scene the uh, the landing at Dover or whatever mm-hmm. the, uh, the Dunkirk Dunkirk, the, yeah. the, Dunkirk. it's a seven minute unbroken tracking shot yeah, yeah. I mean that's like uh, that's phenomenal yeah. filmmaking yeah. and, and uh, you know I, anyway, that I think it's a, actually a really good film, and then and Juno was a big fun hit that you know did not feel as Oscary as the other stuff. Yeah, but. and it was very. I think there were a lot of like people worried about it being knockoffs, and like people were like saying those jokes to each other. But it's still very like sui generis. Yeah. Like it is its own thing. It is a really distinctive voice that hasn't really been repeated since then, and I think is it really deserves its spot here. Yeah, you forget that a lot of imitators of Juno came after Juno, mm-hmm. so yeah. now it's like feels like oh, it was just one of those movies. It's like no, like you said that it was the original yeah. sort of quirky teen you know whatever thing well, and, so. and, and uh alan page and michael sarah like completely discovered yeah in, in yeah yep. and saoirse ronan in atonement debut yeah benedict cumberbatch is in atonement juno temple like those early the early scenes of that movie where they're all at the manor house like it's just stacked with stars who weren't quite stars yet and then michael clayton in a way didn't that kind of signal George Clooney's move from like ER guy to like serious Yeah, I mean I guess Good Night and Good Luck had happened okay. a little bit earlier yeah, but he yeah, didn't yeah. have his major role in it. So yeah, I mean this is like, you know, him it's kind of just like using his star power in a way being like I am George Clooney I can hold the middle of the frame and like I can really own this. And I think it was yeah. the realization of him. I mean, he didn't d- direct it, right? Yeah, but no. he was no, uh, but, he was kind like, of a creative But I think force it was the realization it. of him that his dream to sort of revive that kind of 70s second golden age cinema like that that kind of like the, the tone of that movie is sort of you know re- reminiscent of a movie that that I probably he grew up watching you know and I think mm-hmm. that, that that like and he tried to try that with with good luck and, and um confessions of a uh, dangerous mind mm-hmm. was like, mm-hmm. you know yeah which did not didn't really that pan one, out yeah but but you know Michael Clayton is just so kind of cool and smart and a grown-up and assured yes. that yeah and uh shout out my my 
favorite thing is that uh, Tony Gilroy's follow-up, Tony Gilroy directed Michael Clayton's follow-up, Duplicity, is so good, and nobody yeah, saw it. No it's this like, it. crime caper with Clive Owen and Julia Roberts, and it's really funny really? and smart. And, yeah, oh, it's, it's great. It's Paul great. Giamatti, Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, it opens yeah. with a slow-mo fight scene between Paul Giamatti and Tom Wilkinson on an airport tarmac that's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. Everyone you, go see Duplicity. Oh my god, yeah, please see great. Duplicity. It's such yeah. a treat. Wait, so Mike, you, can you pick from this group? <laughs> <laughs> Do you just want to go with history? I mean, I think for for laughs, I might go with There Will Be Blood just because, I mean, it, it might as well have been. I've to, mm-hmm. It feels like a little bit of a toss-up It kind of feels like it did two. win. Like when No Country won, it was kind of like There Will Be Blood being like co-honored as being like right. here's – Because yeah. in what universe could There Will Be Blood have been nominated for an Oscar like in any other year? Even now it would be hard because it's so grim and so like unrelenting. And, yeah. yeah. I mean Daniel Day-Lewis's performance really carried it because anytime Daniel Day-Lewis does a performance, everyone pays attention. But like the movie itself is so – not an Oscar movie by any traditional definition. No. Paul Dano running around that burning church or whatever. I don't even remember what <laughs> yeah. happens. It's just yeah. totally, it's wild total movie. insanity. I think yeah. you can make a case for this being the year that kind of opened up the modern era of Oscars that we have where like we talked about Black Swan a couple weeks ago. That wouldn't have been a traditional Oscar movie. Like Birdman isn't a traditional Oscar movie yeah. in a lot of ways. Like this was kind of when it st- that definition started shifting a little bit. I mean The Departed had won the year before so I guess it's not only this year but – uh, and then they open up the field to 10 and now we get, you know, every year we get a movie like No Country or There Will Be Blood that's really pushing right. that boundary. It's super dark, anti-hero, kind of mm-hmm. male-driven, but yeah, uh, yeah. that's okay. Well, you know, Juno and Atonement both had really right. great roles for women. And, you know, honestly, well, Michael Clayton had told us Winton, I'm yeah. forgetting uh, the woman in No Country for Old Men, um, Kelly, Kelly McDonald. McDonald. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she has a great like supporting part. So yeah, there will be blood is very manly. I'm not going to do my Danny Day Lewis and there will be blood <laughs> impersonation. Um, then I won't do my impersonation of Tilda Swinton saying "You don't want the money," and Michael Clayton, <laughs> which is one of my favorite deliveries in cinema history. I think as we yeah. talk about this, the one that I most want to watch tonight is Michael Clayton. But I don't. Th- yeah, I think I still got to again a beautiful ending comparing. Uh, oh compared, yeah, uh, No Country for Old Men has that great ending. The ending of Michael Clayton was just like the credits playing in the car. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, what a good year. Yeah. Good for 2007. I know, no, I, I remember at the time everyone being like, 2007 is one of those banner years. Like, because there was yeah. great stuff yes. that whole yep. year all around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I guess I'll keep it with No Country for Old Men, but really uh, good on everybody in this category. Yeah, well, well done, respected <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> you made a great movie, guys. Yeah. I'm finished. <sighs> And that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. And please rate us and review us on iTunes if you have a moment. We love getting the reviews. It helps us find new listeners. It's the off season, and there's still so much to talk about, and people need to hear about it. You can find us all writing at VanityFair.com and all of us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws, and I've decided I don't need to spell it anymore. Oh, me too. I just decided you know how to spell my name. Uh, And we we all have a Twitter account at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply, who are letting us use their very beautiful new studios. It's an exciting time for all of us. And this week's award for best quote from the janitorial staff of Game of Thrones goes to Jason Bateman. Soak a bunch of stuff up. 